This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. My name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's so good to have you with us today. Do you realize that we're only a few weeks away from Easter? I mean, the greatest celebration that we get to have as a church family, we are just moments away from that. It's going to happen in just a few weeks, and I am so excited about it. As a matter of fact, I want to just share some research with you today. The research comes from LifeWay. LifeWay is a group of people who research faith-based topics. And they look at things that would pertain to us and help us to understand the landscape of the the culture that we live in. And, And they went through and did a study based on Easter attendance. Okay, and here's what I want you to see that 39 percent of the people that they inventoried said that they were planning to attend an Easter service. That means if you take 10 of your friends, four of them are already right now planning to attend a church at Easter. Forty one percent of the people said they are not planning to go to church at Easter. That means 41 percent, four out of those 10 have already said no. I'm not going to church. Church isn't for me. I'm I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now. No. But here's the interesting thing. 20% of those people were unsure if they would attend. They were unsure. And I love what the guy who authored the research had to say. He said this. Christians who automatically attend church on Easter should be mindful of their many friends, neighbors, and family members who haven't ruled out the idea of attending. Based on our research, a personal invitation is what would make the difference to them. A personal invitation. So I thought I would walk you through today. And we do this kind of every Easter. Just walk you through what it means to give an invitation. Because there's good invitations and there's bad invitations. Y'all have had the bad invitations, right? The people who try to guilt you into coming to church with them. Right? We're not going for that. So I just want to walk you through what a good invitation on four different levels for us looks like. Level one is what I would call social media. It's a social media blast, right? You put something out there. Hey, y'all, I'm going to be going to Vortex City. So we'd love to have you. We have services at 739 and 1030. All of that. That's good stuff, right? And we do something special at special events. We use hashtags, and so hashtags are special. We use at Easter, the hashtag Easter at Vortex. And what that means is that your friend that sees that you say, hey, come come to church with me. I'm going to have an awesome time. I'd love you to join me. Hashtag Easter at Vortex. They can click on the hashtag, and it will pull up all of their friends that have also posted with the same hashtag. Right? It's a great way to create connectivity. But social media is not the greatest way to invite people. It's very impersonal and it's not direct. The second way is what I would call a text message or a phone call. Second level, level two. All right? And this works, okay? It works especially if you have a, a relationship with 
somebody. But if you text your neighbor that you don't ever talk to except about how they mow your grass wrong and, and, and you don't complain, you only text them every once in a while when their trash can falls over onto your side of the property. And then you text them and just say, hey, would you come to church with me? Probably not a great invitation. Okay? All right? Phone calls and, and text messages are, are, are not, they're good, but they're not best. A, the level three is what I would call a personal invitation. This is when we get personal in inviting somebody to come to church with us. It's a face-to-face thing. It's a, hey, I said, we're having coffee. We have you over for dinner. And, and face-to-face, I just want you to know, I know that you're not a part of a life-giving church family. Our church is a great place for you. I think it would be a great fit. Would you come to church with me? But that, that's not even the best invitation. What I call a level four invitation is a personal invitation with accommodations. All right? Let me explain what I mean by that. It means that in some way, you're going to accommodate their visit. It may mean you saying, hey, I really want you to come to church with me. I want it so bad for you that I'm willing to say, hey, would you meet me at 9 o'clock for breakfast? I will buy your breakfast, and then we can attend church at 1030 together. It may mean you saying, hey, you know what? I know you're a single mom and you have three kids and that's a lot to get ready in the morning. Hey, here's what I'll do. I will meet you in the parking lot and help you get your kids out of the car and help you get them checked into kids ministry. I will help you. I'll meet you. And then I'll sit with you so that you don't feel alone. A personal invitation with accommodations. And we try to make this easy for you guys. So every year we come up with invitations in your worship guide. Today you have these. All right. And I want you to go ahead and start thinking about five friends. All right. That's more than just the two. All right. All right. But out of the scope of your friends, there are people who are waiting for an invitation. Because think about it. This whole thing, all of it hinges on an invitation. It started with Jesus standing on the shore, speaking to a group of fishermen, saying, hey, would you come follow me? And ever since then, the message of Christ has been spread through invitation. Every single one of you is sitting here because somebody invited you. And there's somebody in your life that is waiting on an invitation. And their life will be changed because of it. Who is that person? Now, I want to take care of a few orders of business before we got started in the message today. We're in a series called Chemistry, and, and I feel really <laughs> underqualified to talk about chemistry. So um, we're going to get into that in just a moment. But uh, before we do that, I wanted to talk about one other thing before we get into that. And it really connects to kind of our church experience. Many of us grew up going to church with our parents. And, and when we were in church with our parents... All right, especially if you were a Baptist or a charismatic, there, when, when, when the pastor said something that was awesome, your dad would yell something out. What would he yell out? Amen, right? He would yell out, amen. If you were a Lutheran or a Methodist, your dad thought it, right? They, did, they didn't yell it out. They just thought it in the back of their mind. They didn't say it. And the, the word amen first appears in, in the Scriptures in Deuteronomy 27 where Moses calls out uh, a group of, of, of kind of sayings of who God is and what God does. And the people all respond. And it says, then all the people will say, Amen. 
All the people will say this. First time the word appears in Scripture. It literally means to be in agreement with. And so when the pastor will say, we need to love our neighbors. Amen. Right? But church has changed a little bit, hasn't it? And our church is a little different than the church that you probably grew up going to. And that's intentional. And we designed this moment to be actually quite different than the moment that many of us grew up where the pastor was preaching. We actually designed this moment to be what we would kind or call conversational. Like, I want you to feel like we were sitting at a, a, at a coffee table and I was talking to you. And many of you have sat at coffee tables and talked to me. And if you know me, you know that this is just how the conversation would go. There would be an occasional moment that I'd get fired up and I might get a little bit louder. But most of the time, we're just going to talk. And really, the truth is that if we ran into each other in the supermarket, it would be quite unusual for many of you to just yell out real loud, Amen. All right? It's just the truth about it, right? And so we don't live, our church culture just isn't the amen church culture. But I have noticed something, that there's a new amen. And here's what the new amen is. The new, uh, before we get there, let me just say this about our church. Our church is a phone-friendly church, okay? If I say get out your Bible, uh, many of you have your Bible on your phone. You take notes on your phone. You have our app on your phone there there are all different ways that you're interacting with the message on your phones we're phone friendly we're not the hey silence and put it away please silence it because some of you have very embarrassing ringtones and i don't want you to have to deal with that all right so please silence it but but the truth is is that we are phone friendly but the new amen is this the new amen is sharing a meaningful quote from the message through your social media networks and it is a powerful tool for the church for your friends and for you anytime i sit through a message if you go back and look through my facebook feed to wednesday night anytime i sit through a message i do this and here's why i do it because number one there are friends that i have that need to connect to the truth that i just connected to and so i'll share the quote and i'll have friends i needed that i needed that But it also then continues to remind me of what was a moment that I may forget. How many of y'all have ever been in a message and and it's just been powerful and you felt like it was for you and then you get like three hours from it. You can't even remember one thing, right? It forces you to do that. It's a powerful way to remember, right? So it engages and provides this level of connectivity but i just want to talk about that just for a second see social media is a a supplement to connection but not actual connection itself so maybe you post this quote that says you know fear is the enemy of faith and you put that out there and and you you tag the the speaker in that and you use a hashtag vortex church or whatever it is however you do it and your friend goes man i've been struggling with fear i needed to hear that That's not connection. But connection is now that you know you have a friend who struggles with fear. And so you can call them up and go, man, I've been struggling with that too. Can we start praying for each other? Why don't you text me every day and just ask me how I'm doing? And I'm going to text you and ask you how you're doing. That's connection. 
See, social media supplements connection, but it is not connection itself. And last week we started this series, Chemistry, by talking about connection. Creating connection in our lives and cultivating connection. So I thought it would be helpful today to kind of talk about chemistry and connection. The first thing in your notes today is that good chemistry is all about balance. Y'all remember balancing equations in chemistry? I don't remember very much of it, which was reflected in my grade that I made in chemistry, which was not a very good grade, okay? I think I flew out of there with like two points barely over an F, right? I mean, didn't do very good in chemistry, which is why I feel very underqualified to preach through this series. But I'm doing it anyway. All right, so, um, but I do know that chemistry is all about balance, The equations in chemistry are always balanced. It's based on the law of conservation of mass. Mass, that however um, many atoms are on this side of the equation, there need to be that many atoms on this side of the equation. They can't lose an atom in the process. Okay? And so so there's good, and, and the truth is the same in our lives, that when our lives are lived with good chemistry, there's, there's good balance in our lives. There's good balance in the way that we're living our lives. There's good balance between work and play. There's good balance between home and work. There's good balance in our spiritual life. There's good balance all the way across the board. Right? It's important. But here's the thing. We often don't want balance. What we want is symmetry. We don't want balance. We want symmetry. We want to be in relationship with people who look like us, think like us, and do like us. We're going to find throughout this message that it's really not the best thing for us. I have found this in my life, that my greatest relationships have been with people who are very different than me. Very different. Now, we... Probably all love Jesus, but I've noticed that their personalities are different than me. If you know me, I'm a pretty intense guy. Just me. That's me all the time, y'all. Can you just feel bad for my wife for a moment? I mean, there's never a moment that anything is just like a one or a two. Everything at home is an eight, nine, or a ten. I'm just intense. That's my personality. But my best friends have always been funny. Always. They've always been lighthearted. They've always been able to make me laugh. Because I love to laugh, but I'm way too serious to be funny. And they always needed somebody to laugh at their corny jokes. I noticed that. There's balance there. Because they need somebody to pull them back over. Go, no, 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 this is a serious moment. And I need every once in a while somebody to pull me over and go, hey, no, let's have a little fun. My greatest relationships have always been with people who were different than me. And see, the thing about balance is balance cultivates connectivity. Balance cultivates connectivity. It's comfortable for us to be around people that are like us, that do things like us, that achieve things like us, that make us happy, right? But that comfort does not cultivate connection comfort 
does not cultivate connection. Sociologists say that we are living in a time when many of us live in bubbles where we don't encounter people who are very different than us. Because you can pick your news programs and your Facebook friends and your blogs and your sources of media and you can find people to surround yourself who are just like you. It's called tribalism. And we're never influenced by people who see the world differently. See, our lives are richer when we live in the tension that comes from the balance of those who are different than us. Our lives are richer for that when we embrace that there's a tension there. And here's the thing. When there are people that are different, I love what my friend Andy Stanley says about this, that if there's a tension, there is no solution because problems have solution, tensions have to be managed. That means they constantly have to be addressed. Work, home, life, that's a tension. It's never going to be the same. But our lives are richer when we live in the tension that comes from the balance of those who are different than us. And so really connects us to that third point. Connection is the heart. It's at the heart of God's desire for our lives. God wants us to live connectedly. It's his desire that we live in connection. I mean, he wants us to live connect, connected to other people, okay? And other people who don't necessarily think or act or do like we do. He wants us to live in connection with that. And he wants us to live in connection with himself. He wants that for us. As a matter of fact, if you go very back to the very origin of creation, isn't that exactly what happened? God made Adam and put him in a garden and every day came and walked with him in a connected, intimate relationship and then sin ruined it all. And for the next two weeks, we're going to examine those two dynamics. Next week, we're going to look at how we connect to others. All right, we're going to talk about God's vehicle to do that, the church. And then the last week, we're going to talk about how we connect to God. And we're going to talk about how Jesus removed the barrier to do that through the cross. And we're going to celebrate communion together. It's going to be a very powerful, powerful Sunday. I want you to be here for those two weeks. But today, I want to explore this idea that God wants to live, wants us to live with a deep connection to our authentic self. God wants us to live with a deep connection to our authentic self. And I'm going to base really this talk out of Matthew 22, this moment, all right? And it begins, Matthew 22, verses 34, where it says this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now, just to explain that moment, the Sadducees and Pharisees were both believers in the same one true God. They just had minor theological differences in the way that they viewed the scriptures and what they thought was going to happen in the end times. And there were some differences between the two groups in the way that they practiced their faith. Now, Here's the thing. We live in a world where there are all different types of flavors of Christians, all right? This is, uh, uh, it's almost as if the Bible's saying that hearing that Jesus had silenced the Methodists, the Baptists got together, all right? Because they know now they're going to 
kind of see what they can do. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Now, here's the thing about it. It was not uncommon to question each other, especially the question that's about to be asked because he tests him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. This would have been a very common topic of conversation among religious leaders. What's the greatest commandment? What do you think the greatest commandment is? But notice that the scriptures show us that this was a test. It wasn't a question. It was a test, which gives us an insight into their purpose in questioning Jesus. So Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He answered the question, but like Jesus, he didn't leave it to that. He continues on. And the second, notice they didn't ask for a second, but he's going to give them one. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. I want you to see two things. These are in your notes that Jesus does. This is so powerful. Number one, Jesus balances the equation of love. Jesus balances the equation of love. Because if you know anything about what God has done, God has went all in for you. He's held nothing back. He sent his son to die. He poured out his blood. He gave up his life. He carried the penalty and punishment of your sin. He went all in. That's God's side of the equation. So Jesus says, if you're going to live in love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. I told you before in the past several series that you are a three-part person body soul and spirit jesus uses terminology that connects to those three parts he's basically saying if you're going to love you've got to love with everything you have god has loved you with everything he has you must love him with everything that you have he balances the equation of love and the second thing and this is so counterintuitive if you grew up in church and it's going to mess with your mind a little bit. But the second thing is that he shows us it's impossible to love others if you don't love yourself. It's impossible to love others if you don't love yourself. Do you notice what he says? Quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you realize that if that's true and you don't love yourself, you can't love your neighbor? If you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of your neighbor. If you can't honor and respect yourself, you can't honor and respect your neighbor. So Jesus shows us that it's important to take care of ourselves and have a relationship with our authentic self on the inside that we live connected to that. I think it's important at this moment in this talk to kind of draw a difference between self-care and selfishness. Because there's a vast difference between those two things, and it's really easy to get confused. See, taking care of yourself isn't selfish. It's necessary. 
Taking care of yourself isn't selfish. It's necessary. I would go so far as to say this. You cannot give somebody something that you don't have. If you don't have love and you haven't experienced love, you can't give love. If you don't and have not experienced being cared for and letting God provide for you, you don't understand what it's like to provide for somebody else. If you've never received strength from God, It's hard to give somebody strength. If you've never been encouraged by God, it's hard to give somebody encouragement because you cannot give what you don't have. See, self-care is not selfish. It's important. But there's a difference between selfishness and self-care. Selfishness is self-serving. While self-care is really a part in the entryway to loving others. Now, you've heard that term, right? If you grew up in church, Jesus, others, yourself, that makes joy. I'm I'm just going to tell you, okay? If you live that way with a bunch of people who are very selfish around you, they'll use you up and not worry about it. Now, the part of that that is absolutely true is Jesus first. Jesus needs to be the center of every experience in every part of our life. He needs to be the center of our home, the center of our career, the center of our relationships. He needs to be the center of our finances. Jesus needs to be the center. All right, Jesus needs to be first. But you know what's interesting? When Jesus becomes first, he will actually lead you into seasons that take care of you. We find that in the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, what does the Bible say? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's a direct instruction to rest, to withdraw, to stop. Don't be busy. Slow down. See, the truth is is that God will lead us into places if we're following Him that take care of us. See, here's... I think the big difference between selfishness and self-care. Selfishness builds a false self, while self-care connects us to our authentic self. Selfishness builds a false self, while self-care connects us to our authentic self, who God designed us to be. And here's why the issue between the two is so important. Whatever your self-image is, it is creating the target that you are living towards. Whatever your self-image is, it is creating the target that you are living towards. So a false self is a version of ourselves built from a sinful, broken perspective. It's built from a sinful and broken perspective. And it tends to go two different ways. It says, I'm not good enough. I can't do that. There's no way I can make it. There's no way God's word can be true on that. There's no way that I can ever be that. Or it goes to a, I'm so important, the world would not be able to exist without me. If I step away from that, everything will fall apart. An overinflated sense of importance. 
That's a false self. But our authentic self is a version built from God's view of us. Built from God's view of us. So what I want to do is spend the remainder of our time together talking about what it would take for us to connect to our authentic self. What would it take for us to connect to our authentic self? Number one, we must live with balance while taking care of ourselves and others. We must live with balance if we're going to follow that second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. We must live with balance while taking care of others. And this is a tension that you must choose to lean into and to navigate. Some of us run away from this tension. And we run away, some of us, by just saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to avoid people altogether. I'm not going to mess and get involved with any situation. I'm just not getting messy. I'm not getting involved. And some of us run to the opposite side, and every little thing that comes around, we try to get involved in it. But we must live in the tension that exists in the balance between taking care of ourselves and taking care of others. How many of you need to... Day, to just to realize that God Himself is ultimately responsible for fixing all the brokenness in humanity, not you. Not even everything that you see. But the things that God specifically calls us to. Then we get to step in with joy. Because our authentic self was created to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. But you cannot do that well unless you're taking care of yourself. So we must live with balance while taking care of ourselves and others. Number two, we must let, this is so important, we must let the expectations of God supersede the demands of men. We must let the expectations of God supersede the demands of men. Let me just ask you a question today. Just a simple question. Which voice is louder? The expectations of God or the demands of men? Which is moving your behavior? Which is motivating your action? Which is demanding your finances? Which one are you responding to the most? The expectations of God or the demands of men? Because if we're going to connect to our authentic self and live in our authentic self the way that God designed us to be, the expectations of God have to supersede the demands of men. And for many of you, the problem isn't that you don't have enough to do. The problem is that you have so many good things to do that the good things are keeping you from the better things. The good things 
are keeping you from the better things. So if we're going to learn to let the expectations of God supersede the demands of men, we need to learn to use a simple but powerful word, and that word is no. And that's no to people who want to take us off track. No to people who want to push us in a different direction. No to people who demand more time than we have to give to them. No to people. It's saying no to good things. Maybe it's your family saying, hey, you know what? We, we, we've tried this ball thing before, but when we do that, we get so busy that that becomes all we do. We just do ball, we do ball, we do ball, and we don't really even spend time with each other. So no ball. We're not doing that right now. Taking a break from that. Say no to it. It's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a good thing. But sometimes we have to say no to good things so that we can say yes to great things. And we have to learn to let the expectations of God supersede the demands of men. Number three, we must commit ourselves to spiritual, emotional, and physical discipline. There is no greater issue in your life than discipline. Nothing is more important than discipline and the level of discipline that you are living with right now. It's so important that the early followers of Jesus... The early followers of Jesus were so characterized by their discipline that they came to be known as disciples. The root word of disciple is discipline. And this is so important for us because we live in a world that is, is just inundated and marvels with the flash and talent that others have. But it is discipline that matters the most. Because here's the truth. Discipline unlocks your God-given potential and connects you to the life that God designed you to live. Not talent. Not capacity. Discipline. It's discipline that unlocks that. And if you really want to get connected to your authentic self, it is Discipline that will unlock the connection to the person that God designed you to be. See, some of us push back against discipline because really, to be disciplined, it means we're not in control. The word discipline literally means training to follow. When I used to coach early in the season, we would do these drills that were all cued by my voice. We would run suicides. They would have to break when I would yell. We would run receiving routes, and they would have to break when I yelled. We would run drills where they would have to move based on my voice and early on what we were teaching them was not the drill itself but to respond to my voice and there are some of us as Christians that just simply need to go through a time of training and discipline to learn to hear and respond to the voice of God because it's discipline that unlocks your God-given potential and number four we must choose to let God define ourself. 
not be emotions, opinions, or desires of others or even of ourselves. We must let God have the final say in who we are and who we're becoming. Let God define ourselves. See, the problem is there's some of us today, we're in here and we feel a little empty inside. And the problem is, is that you've been chasing an image of yourself that was created out of brokenness. Not thinking enough or thinking too much of who you are, but not connecting to the authentic self that God made you to be. And you've been chasing an image and you just feel empty and broken and lifeless inside because you haven't been going after the person that God made you to be. And the simple little things that are disciplined, that are connected to that, you've pushed against it instead of embracing it. Because the truth, the truth is, is that Jesus purchased the right for you to live connected to your authentic self. He paid for it. It's what He wants for you. And today in this room, if you're that person that feels empty because you've been chasing something that is broken and wrong, today is the day for you to finally give it up and surrender to God. Say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want to live the life that you want. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.